Once a British newspaper ran a contest where the winner received a substantial cash prize. The money went to the best answer to the question, what is the shortest way to London? Well, here was the winning answer. The shortest way to London is with good company. For long trips are more fun when you travel them with friends. And the same is true for our journey through life. As I look back on my life, what matters most to me are not my accomplishments, but the friendships that I've been able to make in the pursuit of those accomplishments. See, you can measure a person's wealth by counting their friends. And yet lasting friendships require commitment and hard work. Once actress Susan St. James, she gave the following description. She said, friendship is like putting on pantyhose. You get one foot in and then the other and wiggle around and tug until you get it right. Then pretty soon you say, I love these pantyhose. They fit. Rest assured, I have zero experience in putting on pantyhose. But I have had loads of fun over the years watching my wife. And I have seen that it requires flexibility. It requires adjustability. It takes some give and some take. And it's only after quite a bit of effort that they fit. The same is true with a friendship. This is what Paul teaches us in his letter to his pal Philemon. He illustrates for us the value of friends and his willingness to work at those friendships. Well, verse 1 begins, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. You know, there are Christians who have a ministry of writing letters to prisoners. Well, the book of Philemon was written from a prisoner named Paul. Paul was in Rome. He was incarcerated for his faith, and he was waiting to stand trial before the Caesar Nero. Paul wrote three letters while in lockup, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and also Philemon. Along with Philemon, they're all called the prison epistles. Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon were delivered by Paul's friend Tychicus. Paul writes to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. Notice Paul's friendship with Philemon was forged as a fellow laborer for the Lord. You could consider them old army buddies. They had fought many a spiritual battle in the Lord's army. You know, they say soldiers, men who share a foxhole together, who fight shoulder to shoulder, forge deep and durable friendships. The rigors of combat tend to draw men together. They learn to communicate and stay united and trust each other. Soldiers have each other's back. And this is why I believe the best way to make friends is to get involved in the spiritual battle. When you share the joys and jolts of laboring for the Lord together with another person, a special bond begins to form. A real friendship develops. Well, this letter is also addressed to the beloved Aphia, probably Philemon's wife, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. He seems to be Philemon's son. But apparently the son had also followed in his father's footsteps, for he too was a fellow soldier in the faith. And the letter is addressed to the church in your house. Philemon was probably a wealthy man with a large, spacious home. 
And evidently, he had opened his doors and offered his house as a meeting place for the church at Colossae. Philemon and his family were hospitable to the saints. We need to realize that the church met in homes, the homes of its members, for its first 275 years of existence. And this was Christianity's most successful period of growth and expansion. Acts chapter 2 verse 46 describes the habits of the first church in Jerusalem. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Oh, they met in the temple for a large corporate gathering, yet they also gathered from house to house, from home to home in more intimate and personal settings. We need to remember that nowhere in the New Testament does the word church ever refer to a building. We the people are the church. Once a man complained to his pastor, he said, the kids in this church are wearing their hats in the sanctuary. The pastor corrected him. He said, no, the sanctuary is wearing a hat. It's believers, not bricks, that make a church. In Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus said, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. We enjoy our air-conditioned, freshly painted facility. But a church building is a convenience, not a requirement. The first church met from home to home. And don't miss the hospitality that this required. Philemon's family mixed home with church. I would imagine a Sunday school class met in Archippus' bedroom. Aphia was always cleaning the house. She had a potluck in her kitchen from time to time. Philemon mowed the grass every Saturday. People were coming on Sunday morning. And yet gladly they lived their life around church. You know, our church also started in a home. The duplex that Kathy and I rented when we first got married was our initial gathering ground. And it put a definite burden on a newlywed bride named Kathy. People were always coming and going all hours of the day and night, Bible studies and meetings and people hanging out. Kathy shared her house with the church. And this required definite hospitality. You know, usually when we think of spiritual gifts, we think of healing or prophecy or perhaps miracles. But 1 Peter 4 verse 9 adds to the list hospitality. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Oh, when the church meets, we need members with the supernatural knack of making people welcome and including them in the group. God didn't design any of us to be alone. Isolation is never healthy. God wired human beings for community, and He desires all of us to plug into a church and find meaningful friendship with other believers. And it is the gift of hospitality that greases the skids that make that fellowship easier to happen. Well, in verse 3, Paul greets Philemon and family. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. Notice here the Apostle Paul, he prayed for his friends. In almost every letter that he wrote, he let his friends know that he was praying for them. Did you know the most important favor that you can do for a friend is to pray for them? 
And then the next most important favor is to let them know that you're praying for them. What a comfort it is to have someone who cares enough for you that they're interceding with God on your behalf. What a blessing. Well, verse 5, he says, Hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Now, Paul was a good friend to Philemon, but Philemon was quite a friend himself. You know, it's one thing to display love and faith toward God. It's quite another to display love and faith toward other people. And yet, this is the mark of real friendship. See, a friend loves you enough to risk trusting you. They'll go out on a limb for you. You know, we all know how hard it is to trust fallible human beings. Friendship creates a vulnerability. Love people enough and inevitably you'll be disappointed. But the benefits of real friendship are worth taking that risk. Philemon and Paul had learned to trust each other in the midst of the battles that they had fought together. As they had labored in the Lord together. They knew from first-hand experience they could count on each other for cover when the attacks ramped up. As a kid, one of my favorite TV shows was The Lone Ranger. Anybody else remember The Lone Ranger? Yeah. The masked cowboy, he had an Indian sidekick. His name was Tonto. And you remember what Tonto called The Lone Ranger? You remember? Kimosabi. Kimosabi. It took me 20 years to learn what kemosabi meant. Did you know what it means? It means faithful friend. Over the years, through their many scrapes, the Lone Ranger and Tonto learned to depend on each other. They were faithful friends. And this is what you need. Trust me, this is what you need. A friend to depend on. We all need a kemosabi in Christ. Verse 6 tells us, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul's praying for. He's praying that people will notice Philemon's godly life so that his sharing of the gospel will be more effective. See, Paul realizes when it comes to evangelizing others, a life full of good works is far more impressive than a mouthful of good words. Often before people are going to listen to us, we first need to earn the right to be heard. We need to be a friend. We need to show our love. Then they'll be more inclined to listen to our message. Well, he tells us, For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Apparently, Philemon was just a winsome fellow. He was a refreshing person to be around, a winsome witness. You know, spend time with Philemon and you would leave encouraged. You know, there are actually two types of people in the world. You know this. First are those people that are enthusiastic about life. Oh, they love living. They're optimistic. They always have an encouraging attitude. And they try to instill that in you. They look on the bright side. They're full of faith and hope. And every time you're around these folks, your spiritual battery gets recharged. Oh, but there are some people in this world that are just the opposite. They're what I call the spiritual leeches. Like parasites, they just feed off other people. They drain you rather than recharge you. These folks are pessimistic 
and complaining and negative. Invariably, they focus only on themselves and they're always critical of others. And frankly, you hate to be around them. Oh no, not him again. So here's the question. What kind of person are you? Are you a light or are you a leech? Here's a poem for you. What good did it do to be grouchy today? Did your surliness drive any trouble away? Did you cover more ground than you usually do because of that grouch you carry with you? If not, what's the use of a grouch or a frown if it won't smooth a path or a grim trouble drown? If it doesn't assist you, it isn't worthwhile. Your work may be hard, but just do it and smile. You know, it's been said, a long face will do a lot to shorten a long list of friends. I have no doubt that Philemon had many friends because he was a good friend to have. Hey, you'll make more friends in two months by being interested in other people than you will in 20 years by expecting other people to be interested in you. Once a man, he made scores of friends by changing just one word in his vocabulary. One word. For years, every time he heard somebody make a comment, he responded, Ah, baloney. Ah, baloney. One day, he replaced baloney with the word amazing. Now, whenever he hears someone make a comment, he says, amazing. He went from baloney to amazing. And now he has lots and lots of more friends. You can imagine why. Did you know there's a vitamin that you can actually take? That will produce friends? Did you know this? It's B1. (laughs) B1. And it produces many friends. There's an old saying I love. I went out to find a friend, but could not find one there. I went out to be a friend, and friends were everywhere. Now in verse 8, Paul gets to the reason behind the writing of this letter. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such as one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. Now apparently a divine appointment had taken place in Paul's Roman prison cell. Which brings up the question, has God ever booked you a divine appointment? Has this ever happened to you? You just happened to bump into a person you weren't expecting to see. It seemed accidental at the time, but later you realized that God had orchestrated the meeting. You know, the rabbis say, coincidence is not a kosher word. There is no happenstance with God. And such an appointment occurred between Paul and Onesimus. Now realize, Onesimus had been Philemon's slave. And whenever we hear of slave or think of slavery, we recoil in horror. 400 years of Hebrew bondage in Egypt under the rule of a wicked Pharaoh is one example of the cruelty of slavery. Defenseless Africans packed onto ships by European traders taken to the New World and sold to white landowners. Plantation slavery was shockingly evil. Even today, slavery still exists. 
Human trafficking exploits young people held against their will by vicious men and they use them as sex slaves. This is a modern day slavery that needs to be ended. See, chattel slavery of any form where one person takes ownership or control of another person is a horrendous evil. And yet in some ancient cultures, slavery took the form of something far more benevolent. In Hebrew society, under the law of Moses, slavery actually served as an alternative to debtor's prison. Fall behind financially on your bills and you could work off your obligation. Rather than file bankruptcy, working in the house of your creditor was a way for you to climb out of an insurmountable hole. It was a means of showing someone mercy, not cruelty. You need to understand this because Philemon was not a vile, exploitive slave trader. Yes, he had slaves. But Paul here commends him for his love and kindness and faith. Philemon was a Christian businessman who was helping a neighbor pay off some debt and helping him regain his financial freedom. But this Onesimus had failed to appreciate Philemon's care and concern. He begrudged his servitude from the beginning. He copped an attitude from day one. Onesimus probably stole from his boss, worked as little as he could, was a constant rebel rouser. And finally, Onesimus flew the coop. He tried to get as far as possible from all that was familiar. And so Onesimus boarded a boat and sailed 900 miles from the country town of Colossae to the big city of Rome. There he figured he would just get lost in the crowd. And yet a strange chain of events occurred while in Rome. Imagine one night a haughty Onesimus strolls into a local Hooters. Now I don't know if this is actually how it happened, but I'm just imagining So say he strolls into a local Hooters, starts drinking, wants to celebrate his newfound freedom. He downs one too many beers and he makes a pass at the waitress whose boyfriend happens to see him. Well, Onesimus ends up in a fisticuffs. I mean a big brawl. He gets arrested. He gets tossed into the slammer. Well, the next day, Onesimus, he's waking up. He's shaking off his hangover. When all of a sudden he opens his eyes In irony of all ironies, guess who he sees? He is in the same jail cell as as Philemon's buddy, the Apostle Paul. What he thought he was running from, he had run right into. This story reminds me of three college students who visited Key West, Florida. They were on vacation. And after purchasing some pot, they found a secluded cluster of trees next to a building. They thought no one would see them smoking their stash. What they didn't realize is that they were sitting under the air conditioning intakes of the local police station. (laughs) Inside, the police started noticing heavy marijuana fumes coming through the air ducts. Needless to say, the kids were busted. They tried to hide from the authorities in their life. Instead, they ran smack into them. And this was Onesimus. And yet you can imagine what happened next. God used his servant Paul to convict this runaway's rebellious heart. Through Paul, Onesimus saw his need for Jesus 
and opened up his heart to God's forgiveness and to the gospel. As Paul puts it in verse 10, Onesimus, I have begotten while in my chains. Now Paul has this new spiritual son in the faith. Onesimus has been born again by the Spirit of God. And that's why Paul now writes to his buddy Philemon and asks a fellow believer to take back Onesimus as a brother. But what about Philemon? The story has a happy twist for Onesimus, but he was wrong to run. He had a debt to pay. Onesimus had an obligation to Philemon. In fact, his A-W-O-L had now made the situation worse. Under Roman law, a runaway slave was a wanted man. A master listed his name and description with the local authorities. If caught, he often faced death. There is actually a record in the Roman annals of a man who, after retrieving his slave, threw him into a pool of man-eating fish. See, Paul loved Onesimus. The thought of harm coming to him was tough for Paul to swallow. And so he takes up his scroll in his quill and he goes to bat for Onesimus. Paul appeals to his friend Philemon to take back his servant, Onesimus. But notice how Paul makes this appeal. He doesn't use his authority, though he had plenty. Instead, his appeal is based on love. Notice again verse 8. Though I might be very bold in Christ to command you, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Notice that. Paul is asking, not commanding. You know, once Dwight Eisenhower explained the two types of leadership. He put a string on a table and he pushed one end of that string. He failed to move it where he wanted it to go. But then he pulled the string and controlled it precisely. And you know, people are like strings. Folks don't like to be pushed. They respond best to the pull of love. Thus, Paul doesn't push Philemon here. Rather, he pulls on his heartstrings. Paul could have ordered Philemon. Notice he calls himself Paul the Aged. He was 30 years an apostle by this point. Paul was a spiritual heavyweight. He had authority, and yet his style wasn't pushy. He wanted Philemon to receive Onesimus, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Be careful when you push a friend. When you start making demands, boy, you never get far pressuring people. When you begin to push and try to force people to do what you want and figure they owe you the old I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back routine, that's not the Jesus style. A true friend relies not on browbeating or on guilt trips or on pressure tactics or on paybacks, but on love. Learn to love with no strings attached. The best way to preserve a friendship is to avoid forcing a friend. Well, Paul continues his appeal here in verse 11. He says to Philemon of Onesimus, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. Now, here's a word play. The name Onesimus actually means profitable. And so Paul is saying here that Philemon's slave has not been very Onesimus. He's been more a headache than a helper. But now Jesus has made him a real Onesimus 
For Jesus takes unprofitable people and makes them spiritually profitable and productive and fruitful. And so he says in verse 12, I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is my own heart, that's how he felt about him, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. Paul loved Onesimus. Philemon's slave was now Paul's friend. And Paul would have loved for Onesimus to stay in Rome and assist him in his ministry. But he was right to send him back. He had an obligation to Philemon. And a big part of repentance is fulfilling our responsibilities. If Onesimus were to stay and help Paul, it would need to be Philemon's choice. Once Onesimus returns to Colossae and makes things right with his master, then Philemon can decide what's next for Paul's new friend. And I think it's interesting here to note Paul's concern that any help he received for the gospel's sake be voluntary, or as he puts it, not by compulsion. This should be true of everything we do for God or give to God. Never forget 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 reads, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Whatever it is you give, your time, your talents, your money, God wants you to serve him and give to him from your heart. Not because you've got to, but because you get to. God loves a cheerful giver. When we do for God or give to God with a grudge, He considers it a tainted sacrifice. And we learn from the Old Testament that God was insulted when His people offered them less than their best. He expects from us the pick of the litter, the first of the flock. That's why the best gifts are prompted by love. And then Paul continues, verse 15. For perhaps he departed, and this is such beautiful, it's such a beautiful couple of verses. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul insists that Philemon should see the hand of God in this turn of events and view Onesimus in a brand new light, no longer a slave, but a beloved brother in the Lord. Friends, only the gospel of Jesus Christ can radically change one man's perspective of another man. Can change it that radically. From bother to brother, from unprofitable to profitable, from indebted to free. And this became the New Testament church's strategy to rid the world of slavery. How did they do it? They preached the gospel. It is provocative that the first church made no attempt to abolish slavery as a social institution. The first Christians didn't adopt a political agenda or become social activists campaigning for governmental change. Now certainly most examples of Roman slavery were horrendous and needed to come to an end. 
Such slavery was cruel and immoral and anti-Christian. But you never saw the church out picketing the slave markets. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7 instructed believing slaves that unless they were set free to remain loyal slaves. You see, in modern times, we've made the mistake of thinking that every social evil can be cured through forced action or through legislation. See, we assume that societal changes occur when old laws are stricken and replaced with new laws. But realize what happened in America after something as colossal as the Civil War. I mean, following four years of a bloody conflict where 620,000 of our sons died on the battlefield, did you know that nothing really changed in race relations? As a matter of fact, things were probably worse. Believe it or not, after the war, reparations were paid. But not to former slaves, as you would assume, but to former slave owners for their loss of labor. How could such an injustice take place? It was horrendous. And yet it proves the difficulty of changing human hearts. Not even the Civil War could change hearts. Even after a deadly war, racism and bigotry still prevailed. And what about today? After abolishing legalized slavery and advancing civil rights, how are we doing on racial prejudice? How are we doing on racism? Not great. Humans still oppress other humans. People who are supposedly free still get exploited and controlled and manipulated by folks who are smarter or more powerful. My point is, no set of laws can alter the human heart. And this is what the early Christians realized. Social problems like slavery and abortion and poverty are symptoms of deeper spiritual issues. If sin is only dealt with on a legal level, the problem won't truly be solved. It has to be dealt with spiritually, in hearts and in minds. Hate has to be replaced with love. Greed has to go and generosity has to flow. Selfishness has to be substituted with compassion. Truth has to triumph. And this doesn't happen through political means or social unrest, but through spiritual awakening by the gospel. As Paul said to the Corinthians, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Only Jesus can bring about this kind of true freedom from both sin and slavery. Of course, the first church didn't participate in a democracy like ours, where we have an obligation to vote and to speak out on righteous causes. And yet realize, Paul didn't even try to abolish slavery in the church. Here, rather than alter this relationship between master and slave, Paul encourages both men to love each other as brothers. He just lifts the relationship up out of its construct. And he sets it on a new level, a level of love. Understand Paul's answer, the ultimate answer, is love. Paul relied on love. His appeal here to Philemon is based on love, not legislation. Legislative power is like a wet noodle up against the awesome power of love. 
But there's an even deeper lesson in this wonderful story here. There's a symbolic spiritual message in Paul's plea to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. For just as Paul interceded for Onesimus, Jesus intercedes for us. In a sense, we're all runaway slaves, unprofitable to God. In fact, in Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Philemon, he wrote, All of us are Onesimuses. We departed for a while, but only to be received back forever. And no longer just as slaves, but more as brothers of our Lord. We are now joint heirs with Jesus. Certainly we are slaves or servants of Christ. But Galatians 4 tells us that more than just slaves to God, we're his sons. Our place is not just at the master's feet, but we're to be around his table. We're his kids. And he wants us to enjoy his presence and to gobble up his provisions. So I love how Paul intercedes on behalf of Onesimus. Notice in verse 17, the apostle tells Philemon, If then you count me as a partner, receive him. And the Greek word there means receive him into your family circle as you would me. Paul insists that Philemon should treat Onesimus as family. He says his slave should really get the same treatment as his friend Paul. And then verse 18, but he has wronged you, but if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. Paul will pay for the damages Onesimus caused. What he caused Philemon in debt or lost revenue, Paul will reimburse. Paul loved him enough to put his money where his mouth was. And what Paul did for Onesimus depicts what Jesus has done for those of us who have trusted in him. For friend, you have two problems. You got two big problems, one on the asset side and one on the liability side. First, you have failed to earn God's approval. You don't have the assets to be accepted in the eyes of God. And second, you lack what it takes to pay your debt of sin. On the asset side of life's ledger, we don't have enough. On the liability side, we owe far too much. We're in a deep hole. But Christ, the accountant of grace, has the answer. For he tinkers with the ledgers. In verse 17, he deals with the assets. He says, receive him as you would me. Just as Paul went to bat for Onesimus, the Father in heaven has promised to accept us just as he receives his own son, Jesus. Did you know he adds to your account the righteousness and the stature and the holiness of Christ? Now, when you approach God, you can rest assured of God's acceptance because he treats you just as he treats Jesus. You can now heartily go to the throne of grace. You are now in God's family circle. And in verse 18, Jesus works on our liabilities, and we've got plenty of those. He says, if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. Just as Paul agreed to cover Onesimus' debt, Jesus has covered our spiritual damages. On a Roman cross, God placed our sin on Jesus' innocent shoulders. Jesus took our payments and cleared our debt. Remember the last words that our Lord spoke? It is finished. 
in the original language, te telesta. The phrase was an accounting term commonly seen in the ledgers of Jerusalem businesses. The words meant paid in full. When Jesus died on Calvary's cross, all that needed to be done was done for you and I to be saved. You see, the story of Paul and Onesimus and Philemon paints a beautiful portrait of the salvation that Jesus has offered you and me. And then in verse 19, he says, I, Paul, I'm writing with my own hand. Paul's signature now at the bottom of this letter may have doubled as a promissory note. The transaction is now in writing, he's saying. His promise to Philemon is now legally binding. Which is the reason, by the way, that Jesus came under the law. Atonement for our sin had to be carried out legally, by the book, so to speak. Sin had to be blotted out and righteousness imputed according to the biblical legalities. In essence, God has put His signature on our salvation. And then Paul adds, I will repay, not to mention to you, that you owe me even your own self besides. (laughs) And here Paul just proves that he's still human. For he concedes that at times human beings are motivated by less than love. Paul, in fact, here kind of contradicts his own insistence on love. And instead, he throws his weight around. Just in case love doesn't prompt Philemon to do the right thing, he reminds his friend that he also carries some clout. In essence, he's saying, well, you remember Philemon, old buddy, old buddy Philemon. That you'd be going to hell if it wasn't for me. Apparently, Philemon owed his salvation to the ministry and the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Paul is reminding his former convert that he owes him one. And we probably ought to excuse Paul here for his one example of heavy-handedness. All in all, Paul handles what was a delicate situation with tender, loving care. It's been said, a friend is someone who can step on your toes without messing up your shoe shine." I think that characterized the friendship that Paul showed Philemon. And then verse 20. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Paul is confident that Philemon will do the right thing. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, Love bears all things. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Paul expected Philemon to do what was right, even more so. We all need someone who believes in us, don't we? Who has high expectations for us. It inspires in us to do our best. It's been said, a friend is someone who thinks you're a good egg, even though you're slightly cracked. Verse 22. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Paul's planning a visit to Colossae, and he invites himself over to Philemon's house, as if Aphia doesn't have enough people to worry about. Now she has one more house guest to be busy preparing for. Verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
be with your spirit. Amen. And with these few personal greetings, Paul closes his letter to Philemon. But let me challenge you with some closing thoughts. Here's a question for you. What kind of friend are you? Are you a faithful friend? Are you a chemosabi in Christ? Or does real friendship sound like too much work for you? I hope we all realize that when God called us to be his kids, though we may not have known it at the time, he was also calling us to be brothers and sisters together. And I have no doubt that in light of eternity, a brother is certainly worth the bother. Let's work on our friendships and make our church the best that it can be. Father, we thank you for your word to us.